So with all those preludes done, we're going to cover uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 11, paragraphs 3 uh, through 6 tonight, Lord willing. <clears throat> but first, I want to do a little bit of a, of a recap on where we were last week. So let me actually back up, and I'm going to read Confession of Faith, chapter 11, paragraph 1, just to review a little bit of where we were last week. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 11, paragraph 1. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins, and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone. Not by imputing faith itself, the act of believing, or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them. They receiving and resting on him and his righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves, it is the gift of God. <clears throat> and, and what I want to remind us of from last week are these two very important theological terms uh, that are used in this paragraph. <coughs> and uh, if you forget the terms, that's okay. What's really important is the concepts, but the terms are helpful for uh, storing the concepts somewhere in your brain, right? And the terms are imputation and infusion. One of them is what justification is. It's an act of, imputa it's an act of imputation. It is not an act of being infused with something. And I'm going to talk about this just for a little bit because it's... It, it's, it sounds like a very narrow distinction when you hear me explain it. But it's very, very important. Um, it sounds narrow because, <clears throat> and this is part of the divide between us and the Roman Catholic Church. There are many reasons that we're divided with them, but this is one of the major ones. The best version of Roman Catholic theology would tell you that you are saved by grace alone. It is God's grace. And that grace is, is requires faith as well. And that so far sounds really good, except for what they mean by it. They're really good at, at using the same words as us, but, but filling those words with different meanings. And so what they mean is God infuses grace in you as you partake of the sacraments. And by the way, there are seven sacraments in the Roman Catholic Church, not two. They, um, <clears throat> they, they, add, uh, they have baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, which is the Lord's Supper, penance, which is confessing your sins to a priest, anointing, that's you know, when, you, when you pour the oil over somebody when they get sick, marriage, and holy orders, which is interesting because of the seven sacraments, there are some that nobody will partake of, which is a weird thing. But nonetheless, what they mean is that by partaking of these sacraments, by doing these things, God works grace in you. And once God has worked enough grace in you, then he can pronounce you justified. Then he can say that you are saved. Once he has done enough in you. Now, we also believe that God does things in us, and we believe that God works grace in our lives through the ordinary means of grace, the preaching of God's word, baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the prayers of God's people. But none of that grace that he works in us is the basis on which we are justified. We are justified because of Christ's righteousness imputed to us. So the infusion, 
There's a sense in which we can agree that that's a true thing. We would call it sanctification. But it's not the grounds by which you're justified. We believe, and the Bible teaches, that you're justified by what's called imputed righteousness. And that is <coughs> Christ laying his righteousness on you. His perfect sinless obedience, right? We talked about uh, that verse in Luke 2.52, that Jesus grew in favor both with God and with man. That is, he grew spiritually, intellectually. He grew uh, and matured as he was growing up. And he did all of that for you. Uh, we talked about this a bit last week. We tend to truncate and reduce our doctrine of justification merely to say, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That's true. That's necessary. That's essential. I'm not trying to demean it in any way. Amen and hallelujah. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And that paid my sin debt. But he also lived a perfect sinless life for 30 some years. And that perfect sinless human life is credited to our account and is the basis on which God pronounces us justified. Because our sin has been discharged and because... By his grace, we actually have received perfect righteousness. And the reason this is important is, is there's several reasons. One just practical reason. Let me pose it in the form of a question. If my grounds for being justified and accepted before God is based on the level of sanctification that he has worked in my life, I cannot sleep at night. Because I know I have a lot of sanctifying left to be done in my life. I have no peace. I have no assurance. But because it is on the basis of Christ's perfect work credited to me, done on my behalf, I do have peace with God. I do have assurance. I do have hope and a reason to press on and work on this process of sanctification. That is a very... Uh, important part of justification and why we're not Roman Catholic, frankly, because that's a false system and it has no hope. And what does it mean? What's the significance of getting some of these things wrong? Let me just show you just a couple passages of scripture. Flip in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. We're going to pick up in verse 30. Romans 9 and verse 30. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Israel was pursuing good things. They were pursuing obedience to the law of God. We want to pursue obedience to the law of God. But they were pursuing that as their means of right standing before God. And Paul says, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Paul was saying there is because the Jews of his day 
were pursuing their own righteousness as their means of right standing before God. They missed the whole thing. They missed all of it. They're pursuing righteousness. That's good. But they're not pursuing Christ by faith. And therefore, it's not enough. One other passage that's worth looking at here, and there are several, but just one other one. Galatians chapter 5. Would somebody please read for us Galatians 5, verses 1 to 6. Yes, Mr. Canciano. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again that I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are you are Seven. severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For the Spirit, by faith, ourselves, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Thank you. That's good, Mr. Cancino. Thank you. I, I, I did say verse 6, but I meant to cut it off at 4. My bad. Um, the point is, Paul says to these Galatian Christians, you're seeking to be regarded as righteous before God by obedience to the Old Testament. Obedience to the Old Testament is a good thing, particularly the Ten Commandments. Obedience to the covenant sign of of circumcision in the Old Covenant, baptism in the New, is a good thing. But if you're trusting in your obedience to even good things as your righteousness before God, he says in no uncertain terms, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Galatians 5.2. He says, everyone that, that, is, that, that tries to keep the law in verse 4 is severed from Christ and has fallen away from grace. That is the passage that keeps me up at night about my Roman Catholic friends. Because they're not ultimately trusting on Christ's righteousness on their behalf. They're trusting on Christ's righteousness in them. That, that is the, the work he's doing in them. And that's never going to be enough. And Paul says that, that when we're trusting that, Christ is of no advantage to us. Does this make sense? Do we have questions on this before I move on? All right. With all of that said by way of introduction and review from last week, now we're ready to get into the meat of what we're talking about tonight. And uh, these three paragraphs that we're looking at tonight uh, break down into these Three sections. Chapter 11, paragraph 3, says why we are justified, or what is the grounds of our justification. We've already talked about it a bit, but we'll talk about it some more, because it's really important. Chapter 11, paragraph 4, speaks of when we are justified. When does this happen? And then chapter 11, I've grouped 5 and 6 together to explain how do we experience justification. So why we're justified, when we're justified, and how we experience that justification. Chapter 11, paragraph 3. Christ, by his obedience and death, did fully discharge the debt of all those that are thus justified, and did make proper, and real, and full satisfaction to his Father's justice in their behalf. Yet, inasmuch as he was given by the Father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction, satisfaction accepted in their stead, and both freely 
not for anything in them, their justification is only of free grace, that both the exact justice and rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of the sinners. So we see here a slightly different way of explaining what we talked about last week of the two parts of our justification. There are two parts of our justification. Can anybody tell me what the first part of it is? Shout it out. Justification. Yeah. What's the first? What's the first part of our justification? There are two components to justification. Jack. Repentance. Repentance. Um, close. Duncan? Declared righteous before God. Declared righteous. That's part two, but very good. All right, what's the other one? Tucker? Justice. Justice, okay. Did you want to try again, Jack? It's like when you... It's like when you realize you're a sinner... It's not like actually repenting, it's like realizing yourself. Okay, let me try and help you guys out. We said last week that justification is a legal decree of God. And he declares two things about you on the day of judgment for your justification. The second one is that you're declared righteous. The first one is... Not guilty. Not guilty. Very good. Pardoned of sin. So he's declaring that you're pardoned of your sin and you're declared as righteous. Those are the two components of our justification. A, not guilty. B, righteous. Now, these are affected by two things that Christ does for us. We're pardoned by sin by his death on the cross. Right? That's what, that's what it says here. Uh... He's fully discharged the debt of all those that are justified by his death. Okay. And then, on what basis are we declared righteous? We were just talking about this. Josiah. His resurrection. His resurrection. Okay. And what else? His righteousness is imputed to us. Right. His obedience. Yeah. Uh, Josiah is also technically correct. Uh, because that's exactly what the Bible says. He was delivered for our trespasses and then raised, resurrection for our justification. Romans 4, 26, I think. Um, but <coughs> the resurrection is, is generally uh, seen more as uh, the, the proof positive that these things have happened. Right? If, he, if he died and stayed dead, we have no confidence that these, these transactions have taken place. But because he is raised... We know that both of these things are true for those who repent and believe. So, so these are uh, the grounds of our justification. Now, here's, here's another question. People will say, uh, you guys are talking in a bunch of legal terms and, and accounting terms about this, right? Imputed means to credit to someone's account. Uh, legal declarations. Why do we do that? Is that just, I actually heard a guy say, and I'm shocked, a guy at RTS said, this idea of, of penal substitutionary atonement and all this legal language, that's just our, our Western way of thinking being imposed on the Bible. And I'm like, and they let you in? What is going on here? That, 
The reason that we have summarized the gospel and justification specifically in legal terminology is because the Bible does. The Bible speaks that way. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned unto him as righteousness. That's, a, that's, a, that's an accounting term. Um, when, when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he used a, a very specific Greek word uh, that's pronounced uh, tetelestai. And you guys don't need to learn Greek, but that's, that's one that's worth knowing. Tetelestai. Uh, T-E-T-L-E-S-T-A-I. And, and what that word means and how it was used at that time and in that culture it was stamped on a, on a receipt of bill that it was their effective way of saying paid in full. This transaction is complete. And, and so when, when Jesus uses accounting terms to describe his death on the cross on behalf of his people, we can use them too, okay? It's not a Western influence on the Bible. I'm sorry, that really upset me. Um, <laughs> but, but it means paid in full. And, and then the confession says, his obedience and satisfaction is accepted in their stead. What does that mean? In their stead. I, it may be obvious to most of you, but it's older language. Reese. Like, it's in your, um, instead of, basically. Exactly. On their behalf. Instead of them providing it, he has provided it in their stead. Very good. Um, so so that's, that's how we are justified. His obedience and satisfaction on our behalf. Remember again, you know, as we confess in the Nicene Creed, for us and for our salvation, came down from heaven, was incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and was made man. All of that, his whole life, was for us and for our salvation. It was in our place, on our behalf, in our stead. Questions on any of that before we move on to the, the next thing? All right. So when are we justified? Would somebody please read 11.4 for us? When we are justified. Mr. Johnson? God did from all eternity decree to justify all the elect, and Christ did, in the fullness of time, die for their sins and rise again for the justification. Nevertheless, they are not justified until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ unto them. Okay. So what the Westminster Divines are doing here is they're trying to untangle two doctrines that are very easy to get tangled together. They're trying to untangle election and justification. They're directly related to one another, but they're not the same thing. Okay. Um, and so they affirm, right, in the beginning, yes, God the Father did elect a uh, people from eternity. How does it say it exactly? Decreed to justify all the elect. Yeah, he decreed to justify all the elect in eternity past, right, from before the foundations of the world. But that election, that decree to elect them, that decree to justify them is not the moment at which they are justified. Um, so they're trying to untangle these two doctrines. Um, and, and it's also, I have in my notes here, just because I know 
some of you who, who maybe aren't as, as sanctified as, as we would like to be, enjoy kind of like sniping at your Arminian friends. Um, you have to have a doctrine of election because the Bible talks about election. So I've got several verses here for anyone who wants to write them down. Matthew 24, 22, Mark 13, 27, Luke 18, 7, Romans 8, 33, Romans 11, 7, 2 Timothy 2, 10, Titus 1, 1, all speak explicitly of the elect. And this is true in the ESV, in the NIV, in the New King James, in the New American Standard. Whatever translation you want to read, the word is in there. You have to have a doctrine of election. But your doctrine of election is not equal to, it's not the same thing as your doctrine of justification. Um, <clears throat> and that's why they say that uh, nevertheless, they are not justified until the Holy Spirit doth in due time actually apply Christ unto them. And some people, and this happens a lot in uh, Reformed churches, do tend to get these mixed up. Um, and just one uh, way that this, that this works out, and, and unfortunately it tends to be that we get them mixed up in the exact way that our Arminian Baptist friends are afraid that we will, um, which is a shame. But, but one practical way that this gets mixed up is, is, is people will, will espouse a doctrine called presumptive regeneration. What that means is um, a, a lot of Reformed Christians will say, all right, it's God's pattern to work salvation through families. That's true. That's absolutely true. I think, I forget the exact statistic, but it's something like, 90% of, uh, of Christians in the church uh, were raised in the church and come from Christian homes. It's an astronomical percentage. It's, it's true. God does primarily work through families. And so what they will say is, all right, because I believe God works through families and he does, therefore, I'm going to presume that my child is born justified, born a Christian, until they give me evidence that they are not. It's a massive problem. Because the Bible says everyone is born dead in trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2.1. David says, in sin was I conceived. And if King David, who came from a believing home, can be born as a sinner, then so were you. Okay, We don't want to get these two mixed up. Everyone, born in a Christian home or not, is born dead in sins. But that doesn't negate or change the fact that it is also God's normal pattern to work through the ministry of Sunday school teachers, pastors, especially Christian parents around the, around the dinner table to call that child to saving faith and oftentimes early in life. And that's a wonderful and beautiful and true thing, but we don't want to make the mistake of presuming that someone is justified before there is an expression of understanding sin, repenting in faith. Um, questions. Another way that this error is, is conflated is, is, and this is something that you're more likely to hear than presumptive regeneration, because that's just in big, thick theology books that I would love for you to read, but you're probably not going to, um, is, is called the objectivity of the covenant, which means... Uh, because someone is in the church, we believe that they are objectively um, saved. And it's like, no, that's, that's not the way this works. Um, 
All right, so that said, we're now going to move on to our last section, which I've almost burned all of my time, uh, how we experience justification. Um, we'll read this really, really quickly. 11, 5, and 6, how we experience our justification. All right. God doth continue to forgive the sins of those that are justified. And although they can never fall from that state of justification, just like we were talking about from the hymn earlier, yet they may, by their sins, fall under God's fatherly displeasure and not have the light of his countenance restored unto them until they humble themselves, confess their sins, beg pardon, and renew their faith and repentance. The justification of believers under the Old Testament was in all these respects one and the same with the justification of believers under the New Testament. All right. As succinctly as I can put it, what the divines are getting at here is there is a temptation to say, all right, well, God has pardoned my sins. He's accepted me as righteous. Why is life so still hard? Why is life still so difficult? Why is it that if my sin is forgiven, I'm also still punished for my sin, or so it seems? Why is it that my non-Christian friend seems to get away with everything? And the answer is that while God, at the moment of your justification... <laughs> saves you from the penalty of sin, which is eternal death and damnation. He does not save you from the consequences of your sin. This is seen most clearly in the life of David, where after his sin with Bathsheba, he confesses and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan the prophet says immediately, and the Lord has put your sin away from you. But, then he gets the consequences. The child that was conceived will die. And we also see through the rest of David's life the ripple effects of that sin with Bathsheba. The rest of his life is a train wreck. His son tries to take the throne from him. He's uh, exiled just once, I think. But several other things go horribly wrong for him that are all directly related to that. And God uses those temporal, in-time consequences for sin as a means of sanctifying you. As a means of fatherly discipline and love and instruction. And by the way, that's why your unbelieving friend doesn't get all that. Because they're not his child. Um, I have taken almost everybody in this room to Ridge Haven before. If I had to correct and instruct and admonish you guys at Ridge Haven, yes, I have. Did you often see me instructing or correcting or rebuking kids from other churches? No, you did not. Why? They're not my kids. Y'all are my responsibility. Y'all are the ones that I'm entrusted to care for. And so I give you that correction, that instruction, not because I'm mad at you, but because I care about you and I want to see you all do your best. And, and that, in the same way, is why God allows uh, calamities and consequences from sin to instruct us, to fatherly give, his, give us his fatherly discipline. Lastly, the last paragraph here, I, I, I don't think I have to argue for much. They're saying... Old Testament people, New Testament people justified the same way, by Christ alone. Old Testament looking forward to him, New Testament looking back on him. Nonetheless, it's on him and him alone that we stake our justification. 
Huzzah. Let's pray. God in heaven, I give thanks to you for these, my young friends. I thank you for your love for them. I thank you for the, the privilege that it is to share with them the truths of your word. And I pray, Lord, that when they are discouraged and when they're downcast by, <clears throat> by sin and by just the, 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 the trials of this life, that they would know that we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.